You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. This week's episode will be a continuation on our discussion of the Mueller report, featuring Stuart Baker, a partner at Steptoe & Johnson, Jamil Jaffer, the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University, Mark Zaid, the managing partner of the law offices of Mark Zaid and a practicing national security attorney, and Harvey Rishikoff, the chair of the Advisory Committee on Law and National Security. This podcast was recorded on Friday, April 26th, prior to several developments surrounding the Mueller report, including Attorney General William Barr testifying before the Senate and his refusal to testify before the House of Representatives. So the podcast will only be concerned with the contents of the report. For more information on the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security, visit us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. We're, we're talking about he, whether or not he, a president can be prosecuted. Now, one of the things is he's not going to be president forever, and at some point he's going to be out of office. I guess query now whether or not he could be prosecuted, and secondarily, if he wins re-election, we may be outside the statute of limitation for all of the crimes not here in reference. Not if the statute has been told. Yes. And, there, and if it's been told, then there's reasons why the case cannot go forward because of an immunity issue. And a time limit that would he would still be on the hook, potentially for those particularly told statutes. But there's not an immunity here. This is just a policy, right? So I, I, my guess yeah. is, I mean, plus, yeah. it, it, once he's out of office, no one's going to care enough to pursue it. Well, you know, the, the French president experienced some of this, leaving office and being prosecuted. Yeah, he was a crook. <laughs> Thank you for making my point. He was, he was taking money. <laughs> Thank you. Well, fascinating. Yes. Yes, I was just waiting. I started to count down from five to when we criticized the Europeans and Italy in as well. As I, I think. But let me the, just the, the Berlusconi but, example too. Not as a, yeah, exactly. As opposed to a Democrat or Republican, you, we do we all agree that there is a level in which there has not been sufficient evidence as a matter of law to pursue a obstruction counts. But there may be sufficient evidence that would support an investigation or a movement of impeachment by the House because it's high crimes and misdemeanors, which are a little bit unclear what the actual legal definition is. And many law reviews are written about what that constitutes that falls below a beyond a reasonable doubt standard, but is high enough that would move a House to be able to move for impeachment charges. Are you, are you saying, do you think the Judiciary Committee would impeach a ham sandwich on this evidence? Absolutely. <laughs> they, they can do it if they want to. So then it would be kosher but, to but, use mismetaphors. <laughs> yes. but, um, but that, because in the end it becomes much more of a political judgment oh, completely. This than is, a legal judgment. And, and, yeah. and there is no way, yeah. in my view, that, yeah. that they can sell an obstruction impeachment on this record. Everything happened, practically everything that's in this report we already knew about. Um, And it was in public, and that makes a difference as a practical matter in the political question, are you going to impeach somebody? But you would agree that the president's affidavit has a lot of memory lapses as to what exactly took place. But doesn't even address that part of it. 
you know, the president yeah. declined to, of course, come in voluntarily, even though he said he would, which was good lawyering for sure, because that could have raised a lot of other problems. But he didn't address what these issues of obstruction in his in his written statement. So that was a deficiency identified by special counsel that they didn't have his intent. Mm-hmm. I love this. I, I think this entire discussion is methadone maintenance for people who are still addicted to the view that they're going to knock Trump out of office because the walls are closing in, as we've heard from CNN for like two years. Uh, it's over, you know, uh, yeah. and uh, uh, there, are, there are things we should be doing, but we should stop trying to settle scores over the 2016 well, election. Well, let's, let's, let's move Different on from issue. this because um, I, I think there are – I think what we've done now is we've, we've gotten sucked into this vortex. But uh, one of the problems is um, I noticed that the press has really monetized this entire thing. They have you – know, they've recited the language collusion – um, which is, you know, obviously rhymes with delusion, so that's a nice word to use, whereas conspiracy, I mean, go ahead, I challenge anybody here to come up with a word that rhymes with conspiracy. Uh, the press just got sucked into this thing, and the dialogue about the efficacy and thrift of the Russians and this interference campaign really has been just completely buried. Um, can we talk a little bit about where we are with this and what the likelihood is, what legally could be done to better address this uh, concern about interference with elections broadly? So because- let, me, mm-hmm. let, me, let, me, mm-hmm. let me touch on that because yeah. I think I, uh, maybe others don't agree with me. I think the notion that all the IRA activities and the fake groups and, and the like uh, uh, had an impact on the election is unproven at best. It's it, it, they spent a tiny amount of money, and who knows whether it was effective. Uh, plenty of people f- who used to work at Facebook spent a whole lot more money to change the election in the other direction. Uh, and my guess is uh, they knew better what they should be spending the money on than the Russians did. Um, and so we have no idea uh, whether that activity affected the election. What did affect the election beyond doubt, is hacking the DNC and Podesta and releasing all of those files. That was a game changer that had a major impact on the campaign. Maybe it didn't change the election, but it was a big deal. And it seems to me that we should be asking ourselves, what are we going to do about that kind of activity, as opposed to getting too hung up on the idea that uh, the Russians knew how to spend $100,000 better than uh, the campaigns knew how to spend you know, tens of millions of dollars. You don't think some sort of public education campaign really reaching out to people in this country and making them more aware of what they might be viewing wouldn't be worthwhile? Or do you presume the process itself is educating? Yeah, no, I, I, sure. If, if, if the Russians are buying the ads, uh, they, they, they ought to be labeled Russian ads. Uh, uh, that, that only makes sense. And probably Farah would require that, uh, or certainly a variant of Farah that's constitutional. So, so you raise uh, uh, the big issue, which I think is what we have to be concerned about with the 2020 election. So the first is under international law, there is no uh, violation of espionage as an international legal norm. Everyone commits espionage. So who cares? We don't. It, it's 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 a violation of our law. So then the second. Well, it's only domestic law. So then the second. Only what the hell? The, the, the international law is just uh, bogus. Well, <laughs> well, it's not per se, but we could just say <laughs> one of the issues is what is an appropriate response to this concept of having 
adversaries intervening directly using our social media, our First Amendment protections, our rules to really mess with the messaging of the, the Democratic Party. Isn't that, doesn't that concern you? Yes. Yeah, so, okay. Look, uh, the Foreign Agent Registration Act was designed to counter Nazi propaganda and Nazi payoffs to uh, uh, reporters and congressmen to uh, 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 deliver their message. And the court has said it is constitutional to say speech that is on behalf of a foreign government can be labeled as such. Uh, and that's a that's a fair approach. Right. I, I, we haven't done that yet, but would make sense. I think what we ought to be asking ourselves is what can we do about the distribution of genuine material stolen from Americans uh, uh, in an effort to influence the election? And I think there are more things that could be done there than mm -hmm. we have been talking about. Uh, um, the Supreme Court has looked at a couple of... Uh, cases in which the uh, Congress purported to say, if you wiretap somebody, mm -hmm. you may not disclose, and people who get that material from you may not disclose it. Uh, and they have said, you can't have a blanket ban, but only for circumstances where it's addressing a, an important public issue, uh, a, a, as opposed to just um, releasing it for gossip purposes, I think you could probably write a law that says um, if you're a anybody, but including the media, you can't simply say, hey, we got a million documents from the DNC and we put them all online. Uh, you can still go through them and write stories if you want to, but taking all of that stuff and releasing it uh, broadly is inappropriate. And when you write stories about it, you need to explain where it came from and what the motivations of the hackers were. So, Mark, I'm sure you would feel uncomfortable with something that restricted the First Amendment that way. Yeah, I was thinking about it. It's going to run into a lot of problems, especially with the Pentagon Papers case. If I was at a, a event just the other night by my law school classmate who's the deputy general counsel of the New York Times. He definitely wouldn't agree mm -hmm. with, with that type of statute. And they, and they do feel well, that... That actually makes me feel better about it. Yeah, <laughs> e even, even that when they do obtain information yeah. that is obtained illegally yeah. from the source, that source could be prosecuted, but their publication of it would not be subject to any type of penalty. And, and the Pentagon Papers case, Eason says, maybe from a, at least from an injunction standpoint. So you, have, you might ask him um, why he doesn't publish Beyonce's uh, latest album on the New York Times website so we can all listen to it. There's a copyright, copyright issue. Well, there you go. Obviously. Okay, so that, but that's, that is a restriction on what you're entitled to put up. Uh, everything in the DNC's uh, email archive was copyrighted. So on, on that point, I think it's quite interesting that the Snowden indictment does not go after Snowden for the actual publishing of the material. It's that he was involved in yet another conspiracy with the, the defendant in order to try to get the information. So he was actually part of a group breaking the law in going after Assange or Snowden. Assange. That Assange was uh, uh, indicted Casting. in that manner. Right. Yes. Which is kind of a, a way of seeing the difference between Willfully doing it and then personally. Well, I, tell you, I, I even get a little uncomfortable yeah. about the notion of. I, I think it's fine from a domestic standpoint if we criminalize what the conduct of the Russians was 
and presumably will be. But I always throw into mix, since so much of my work is within the Intel community of representing folks who work in the Intel community, that I always say, take one step back, because are we not doing anything similar elsewhere around the world? Not, not the Ill, necessarily the oh. illegal hacking, stealing, but influencing elections around the world. We've had numerous yes. examples where we have in the past. So I, I always want to like this hesitate is the Stuart a second. Issue. Yes, but this yeah. is the issue of a norm, which Stuart will be getting. We have to get yeah. a seatbelt for a seat. <laughs> but that's the idea of should we say, as we do under international law, that you cannot attack the Red Cross or the Red Crescent? That's a violation per se of international law, which we normally follow. Would you like to see, Stuart, a norm in which it said tampering with the electoral process for both the West, the Chinese, and the Russians, and any other adversary so is off ground. This is obviously what Putin wants because he thinks that Hillary Clinton started this, that she yes. tampered with his election mm -hmm. uh, and his effort to su mm -hmm. successful right. effort to steal it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, or tampered with elections around the, uh, the color revolutions. No, well, it, yeah, there, yeah. Was, there was one yeah. in, his, uh, in, in Moscow. Yeah. There were lots and yeah. lots of, ver of very heartfelt demonstrations driven by Twitter and Facebook and the like. Uh, uh, and he really felt threatened by that. And he was determined to make Hillary feel the same pain that he felt. And I think he has succeeded. Uh, um, but I, the idea that we're going to say, oh, there should be a norm and maybe we should get the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations to come in and tisk tisk at people when they violate the norm, I, I, I strikes me as preposterous uh, and unlikely. Um, and instead, I, I, you know, I think the answer, if you're an American, is you screw with our election, we're going to make you pay. So you would prefer what we call in the law countermeasures yeah. and having a much more aggressive set of acts. Yeah, but we also, we should also have uh, mechanisms to make it harder to pull that off uh, inside the U.S. by saying we're not going to just take this stolen stuff and spread it far and wide and let the uh, uh, American media do the task that you want them to do. Uh, we're going to ensure that the source of this is made clear and that there has to be genuine newsworthiness to what is published and what is published needs to be an abstract of the but data rather than the data itself. Okay. If you take All Mark's right. rule, well, let's, though, let's, I'll do one. If you take Mark's on. rule, <laughs> if it okay. appeared that one could trace back to us playing in other sort of sandboxes, that we should expect to have countermeasures all right, taken okay. against us. Yes, no doubt about it. All right, let's move on here. All right, I have a question for all of you because I, I just feel that this report in its entirety should be mandatory civics readings for all Americans. I don't care what your political background is. You need to read it. You need to understand what happened to us. But what fact did you find in this report that most surprised you or you think was significantly underreported um, Mark? Sure. Actually, Harvey already mentioned it. And what I wouldn't say necessarily, ah, I suppose it could be a surprise because we didn't know it. But the notion that there were 12 criminal referrals that we don't know about yet. There were 14 in total. One was Greg Craig, uh, which is an entirely another thing for, for Washington, D.C. to talk about for sure. Uh, and the other was Michael Cohen up in, in New York. 
So the fact that there are 12 still that we have absolutely no idea, and they may end up going nowhere, but we have no idea what they are, that to me uh, is, is the most surprising or the most intriguing, perhaps is the better word. And whether it's underreported, the problem is that unless the reporters have access to the special counsel's office or someone in the court, there's, there's no way to report on it because nobody even knew about it at the time, which is the, in the last point I'll say on this is the, the fact of the matter is I think this special counsel's office has probably been the tightest closed ship of any investigation that I've seen in quite a while uh, where we have routinely been surprised every step of the way either when he actually filed an indictment and nobody knew it was coming uh, or now after the fact of these new things that no one knew. Uh, so a lot of reporters might be saying, oh, see what I reported back you know, uh, 14 months ago? See, it's true. That may be coincidence more than anything else at times. I think that's fair and also a reflection on uh, le Mueller's leadership skills and his personality, which is, is incredibly steady. Stuart, what about you? So the, it's, it's a little thing, uh, but I, I was striking in light of all the expectations that were built up by the press about this. Uh, after the President Trump is elected, there's an effort. There's an effort on the part of the Russians to talk to the Trump administration, and the Trump administration to talk to the Russians. And what I was struck by is they had no clue how to reach each other. They were. They, uh, at one point, I think Donald Trump is sending emails to a, a, a general um, address uh, a, a in the Kremlin. Uh, uh, and if this, if there was a conspiracy, they would have had a much better set of communication protocols. Uh, um, and I, I think that sort of sums up for me how little there was to the original collusion allegation. There's just not much there. And, and I, you know, that means that we have wasted two years uh, with all this talk about the, 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 the walls closing in and an effort to uh, say this is not a legitimate president. That's, uh, uh, that was a complete waste of everybody's political energy. You know, ironically, the notion of not being able to communicate was not surprising because I handled a, a Freedom of Information Act matter for MSNBC uh, right after the inauguration, and uh, it involved the Office of Government Ethics here in D.C. And what we learned from the emails that were revealed was that the Office of Government Ethics, which handles all the transition with whoever is coming in, couldn't communicate with the transition team because they didn't have any of the right emails. Right, plus, plus the entire transition team had been fired. <laughs> yes, that was the other part. And they, did, they kept emailing to people saying, okay, who are we supposed to talk to because this email keeps getting bounced back? Is there, there must be someone. We need to tell you how to transition into government. Well, the ultimate defense of the Trump campaign is our operation was so shambolic that we couldn't possibly have agreed to do something as sophisticated as this. <laughs> Harvey, what do you think? Uh, so in the end, if you take a step back, the outstanding aspect of the report, as you said, you didn't see, is the report. So there are certain conical documents that we've been using over the years about talking about executive power and, and the power to investigate. So the, as you know, uh, one of the documents that we use a lot is the minority report in Iran-Contra that was uh, written by Cheney. Uh, when, under his stewardship about his belief, their belief of the improper investigation of Iran-Contra and the role and true role of the presidency and was authored by David Addington. 
And it's almost a blueprint for when Bush 41, 43 takes power, how they start articulating what the role of the presidency should be. So what's extraordinary is the length of the report, the detail of the report, and in the end, the inconclusiveness of the report. So that the special prosecutor conveys to the attorney general, it will be the attorney general's decision as to what to do with the report to go forward. The attorney general's decision, which is very much uh, aligned with Stewart's understanding of the evidence, and the fact that this still is not conclusive, because in the end, it's not going to be a legal issue. It's primarily going to be resolved as a political issue. That is an extraordinary phenomenon of the entire report. Well, um, I do think it should be illegal to discuss the report unless you've actually read it. Um, and I am skeptical that many of the people speaking about it on television have. So I'm really glad to have you all here today. And I'm sure you've read every single word. Well, of just the for the record, thing. we have the report with us. And we should say for the record, it isn't Jamal agreed with everything I said. He left the room. All right. And thanks for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. You can find links to the CI. You can find links to the Mueller investigation. Uh, We will also link a uh, lawfare post on the statute of limitations, uh, equitable tolling uh, for your interest. Um, And we will also hyperlink for you the uh, regulations which were referenced by Harvey as well as the publicly available OLC opinions. There are two of them. Thank you for listening. Drop us a note at national security at AmericanBar.org or find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC. We welcome your feedback. So thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.